morning, I want to invite you to go to James chapter 4. We're going to continue our series, be doers of the word in James chapter 4. I know it says James 3 in your handout this morning, but that was a typo. Actually, a mypo. That was my bad, okay? So that was my problem. So that was uh, some bad information and kind of a weak moment. But James chapter 4 is what we're going to look at this morning. Listen, I want to ask you a question. If you could uh, be responsible for discovering the source of all arguments, conflicts, and tension in your life, would you be up for that? It's a good question, isn't it? Uh, What about the workplace or maybe where you serve? How about your marriage? Relationships in your family? If you could find out what is the true source of conflict and go there and bring about newness and resolve, that would be awesome, yes? What about in the world? Uh, James, this pastor who who wrote this great letter, ends this last section at the end of chapter 3 with a firm but loving exhortation to be peacemakers. He says, don't be a devil. Don't act like that. Actually pursue peace in all of your relationships because what's in view is an atmosphere of peace where righteousness can grow. And we all contribute to that with our lives, with our attitudes, with our words, with our deeds, the way we live our lives, our priorities, and our affections. James was a pastor, first and foremost. He wrote to a body of people, a local church, who were facing trials. He wanted to encourage them to stand firm. They were struggling with issues of doubt and with fear and kind of shrinking back from their confidence in the Lord because of the the press of life. Who can't relate to that? And this letter is practical if it's anything else. But also these people to whom James wrote were struggling with conflict in and amongst themselves That's what's out there in the world, by the way. The world promotes dissension, antagonism at every level. Kind of this idea that you do everything you can to get ahead, to make your mark, to gain everything possible for yourself. And don't worry about all the bodies you leave in your wake. It'll take care of itself. That's kind of a worldly um, understanding of how life works in the pursuit of all things self. And rather than a climate of peace that promotes righteousness, that's good living, things that actually bring honor to the Lord, what we have is this constant battlefield of relationships and wills. Now, I'm going to read this passage starting at the beginning of chapter 4, and we'll kind of go back and make a few comments and hopefully tie it up with a path Uh, for some really good news. Here's what James says. Listen to this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? The two words that he uses that are translated fights and quarrels are usually used for national warfare. So this is intense conflict that he's talking about. What causes those sorts of relentless, kind of escalating disputes, fights and quarrels among you? It would be good to know from God's perspective why there's so much conflict in interpersonal relationships, maybe in my life or in my marriage or my home or in the relationship with the people that I'm in, in in with in the body of Christ. Here's what God says. Listen, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You know what the source of conflict, this kind of relentless 
arguing and warring over preferences and wills. You know what the source of that is? The source of that is my own selfish desires. That's what God says. It comes from within. He says, it's because of your desires that are battling within you. The word is hedonon. We get our English word hedonism from that expression. Hedonism is is the relentless, mindless determination to always seek and find pleasure for myself. That's hedonism. Worldly pleasure is the chief priority of my life. Whatever it takes for me to be satisfied, for me to kind of be um, exalted, exhilarated, whatever that means, that's how I'm going to live my life. James says that is the source. When that is pursued, when that is the high priority of your mindset, of of your attitudes, of, of your agenda, then what the result is, not peace, not righteousness, but constant fighting, quarrels, and conflict. By the way, you can be a Christian, you can be a follower of Jesus Christ, because that's who James was writing to, and be consumed with something you want or desire for yourself. Your own fulfillment, it's pleasure. This is not leisure, that's all good. It's okay to relax, have some good time, just kick back, let the Lord restore you. You know, David said, the, the Lord is my shepherd, and he, he makes, sometimes he's got to make me lay down in green pastures, right? David was kind of type A, just make that guy lay down, just relax for a while. God's all about that. He's all about kind of relaxing and and enjoying the wonder of creation and taking some time to rest. In fact, he created a command that said, you shall keep the Lord's day holy. It's a Shabbat. It means rest. Do you know that you're commanded by God to rest? But you are not commanded by God to seek pleasure for your own self at all costs. That's the difference. When that's in view, when that is fully operational in your life, the result is not peace that brings righteousness, but conflict. Relentless, intense, escalating conflicts, quarrels, arguments, no peace. It's the opposite of peace when that's operational in my life. And the source of it is my hedonistic desires. Even as a Christian, just desiring my own way, something that satisfies me. I'm just kind of illustrate this. I guess I kind of just got to thinking. All you need to do is really spend a few minutes on a Sunday morning in this place in the toddler nursery. And we invite you to do that from time to time, by the way. One little person has a ball playing happily away with the ball. But there's a little bruiser in the corner who spots it and desires the ball. And so you know what happens next. All of a sudden, the little girl in curls with her pink pumps is pounced upon by the bruiser from the corner and grabs the ball. And now there's a battle. It's my ball. I want the ball. No, it's my ball. I had it first. They don't talk. They just scream. Back and forth. Back and forth. Their faces get flushed. There are tears. They're screaming. There's weeping and wailing. The noses start to run. I mean, it's a horrifying scene, but we all smile. They're toddlers. And so we, we, we abide it in the toddler nursery to a certain degree. 
But what happens if you're still doing that when you're 17? Or 40? Or 62? Or 75? Have I covered everybody out there? I don't know. Anybody above 75 gets a pass from the rest of the service. Wow, that, that, that's a problem. If I'm so bent on my way, this is mine. I'm going to pursue this. It's all about me. It's about kind of fulfilling my passion, my, my hedonistic ways. I want this because it makes me feel good. It gives me a release, kind of an exhilarating high, whatever it is. It, 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 nothing good comes of that. That's what James is saying. What is the source of all these fights and quarrels among you? I would say, well, it's her. You know, like Adam. The woman you gave me. That's the source of the conflict in my marriage, right? No, James says, it's you. It's that desire in you to have your way, to force your will, to have all of these things that you believe are rightfully yours. That's what causes conflict. That's what causes Arguments and quarrels and all of this dissension. These are worldly impulses, says James. Lusting, desiring after something you want but you can't have. Look what he says. You desire, verse 2, chapter 4, James, but you do not have. Literally, you can't have it. So taken to its logical end, you might even kill for it. How about that? It might resort to murder. Murder is prohibited by the commandments, by the way. Jesus broadened the definition of murder. It doesn't mean just to take someone's life intentionally. But even if you harbor anger or resentment towards a brother or a sister because of this desire to be right or to fulfill your own will, force it on someone else, you are guilty of murder. See, it can drive you to that. Also, covetousness. You shall not covet, says God in the commandments. Covetousness is desiring something that does not rightfully belong to me. It causes conflicts. These are from the world. And it's a pursuit of selfish desires in my mind, in my actions, in my attitudes, and in all of these things. By the way, it's why these addictions can be so terribly destructive. It's all about pleasure. It makes me feel good. It helps me kind of mask the pain or at least kind of feel like I'm released from it somehow or somehow I have this kind of imaginary vision of receiving something that is not mine and it's far enough away that it doesn't really affect me but I can see it or look at it. But what it does is it tears apart relationships and marriages because of this principle. Your eyes see what you really can't have but you pursue it. And the result of never having it because it is so ever-elusive is horrible destruction. And it's the source of arguments and conflicts and tensions and outbursts and all manner of destruction. One author called it anxious self-seeking. I like that. It's living apart from God's best for our lives. You can do that even as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ because he's writing to Christians. And look what he says, starting at the end of, of verse 2, James chapter 4. He said, you desire what you don't have, so you kill. It, gets, it, it can go to its worst 
possible extent. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. How many marriages, how many arguments and fighting was over just one of the two, just quarreling over something they just had to have, or, or maybe there was some sort of relationship that was wrong or unhealthy, and it just it brings the relationship down to the dust. You see, it's, it's penetrating in its effects, its damaging effects. But then James says, you do not have, you do not have what? You do not have ultimate fulfillment in your life because you don't ask God. You want to be fulfilled? You want ecstasy? You want a sense of genuine purpose and depth and meaning in your life? (laughs) Ask God. Because he's the true source of fulfillment in your life. Not these other things, not these worldly kind of desires that are within us. What You don't have it because you're, you're going to the wrong source. You don't have it because you don't ask God. Ask God for fulfillment. Ask God to bless your life and to make you whole and to bring healing and to release you from the pain and the shame of your past or whatever it is that you're hoping to gain through these other pursuits. Here's why you don't have it, James says, because you're not asking God. And if you do ask God, he says, you don't receive because you're, you're off track. You're asking with the wrong motives so that you can just spend it more on yourself. You see, this is, this is a life, this is a Christian that has gotten off track. That has so begun to pursue these other things in their lives that they're not even thinking straight. They've they've stopped kind of the wondrous, humble kind of discipline of, of seeking the Lord, asking God for direction or for a sense of his purpose and fulfillment in their life. And they've they've gone after these other things. And maybe at times they, they turn and they, they ask God for something, but they're even off in that because they're not asking according to his plan or purpose, but rather, Lord, do this for me because this is what I really want, but not what you want. You ask with the wrong motives. That's, that's a person who's just lost track. And it, it can have devastating results on your life on your relationships. You're not asking for yourself, or you're not asking for God's will, you're, you're asking for, for yourself. Now, I thought it might be helpful to see this um, <clears throat> played out. <laughs> so to do that, I want to go back to the Old Testament, hold your finger or mark or something in James 4, and let's go to Genesis chapter 16. Turn all the way over to the beginning of the scriptures, Genesis chapter 16. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there are a few scattered in front of you. Um, You could grab one of those and follow along or take it with you if if you don't have it at home. We want you to have it. Genesis chapter 16. This is a real story. These are real people. This is a home. This is a family. This is a husband and wife They were part of God's redemptive plan. God had spoken a promise to Abram that he would bless him. He was going to bless him with a son. And through that blessing, through that child would come uh, a great nation. And all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. That's that great Abrahamic covenant. God makes a promise to Abraham. The trick is here is that Sarah is old. They both are well into their 90s. And she's barren. 
She's never been able to have children. In fact, it's impossible for her to have children, but yet they've got this promise, this hope of a child from God. That's where this story picks up in Genesis chapter 16. Now watch this. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. By the way, just a little insight into this situation just by that expression alone. Sarah's off the mark here. She's already accusing God of withholding from her something he's promised to give her. She's not in touch. She's, she's, she's off the mark here. The Lord has kept me from having children. This is what she says to Abram. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. (laughs) Wow. I wondered if James was like thinking of this story when he wrote his letter to the church. I mean, this is James chapter 4, kind of unplugged in this family. Sarah's off the mark. She's got this desire, obviously, to build a family. God has a desire to redeem the world through a promised blessing. Sarah's desire is to build a family around her. And so when it doesn't square up with God's timing and his plan and purpose, what does she do? She pursues her own kind of set of priorities and desires here. And she goes to her husband, she blames God, and she actually offers up her slave, an employee, to her husband and, and, and entreats her husband to actually commit adultery with this woman, which is an act of violence because this woman was under their authority What's worse, Abram's, Abram agreed. So that's off. <laughs> that's way off. He's not even operating in his rightful place as, as spiritual overseer of this home. He's playing right into this hand. He just agrees. Okay. Okay. Come on, guys. God, God expects so much more of me and you. He doesn't want you to be Lord, you know, the great poobah over your house. Nobody needs any more of those guys on the planet. But he wants you to humbly stay before him and oversee your home so that things don't get so out of whack that it starts to bring all this dissension and quarrels and, and nonsense into your home because you do, oh yeah, whatever, whatever, babe. No, guys, come on. That's not God's plan. God's plan for the man of God, for the, for the family that honors the Lord is, 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 is for the man to say, listen, I'm gonna humble myself before God and we're gonna, we're gonna follow him humbly. I'm not the boss, but God has held me to a standard. That doesn't sound right to me, Sarah. Let's rethink that. We're not going to do that. It's off. A Christian home, we can do the same thing. 
Um, Abram goes with it. Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years. Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, gave her to her husband to be his wife. I mean, this sounds like one of those cable television episodes, you know, that's kind of the series. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. She conceives, now she's with child. Then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Here it comes, here comes the argument. This is an argument. You're responsible. I put my slave in your arms and now she knows that she's pregnant. Now she hates me. May the Lord judge between you. That's an argument, that's a quarrel. That's what James is talking about. Watch Abram, your slave is in your hands. Abram said, do with her whatever you think best. God, man, that is a quarrel. That's an argument. Nothing good can come of this. That's what James is talking about. And back in that letter, back in that passage, he he, he opens the file on the wider issue. The issue is the human heart. Verse 4, James chapter 4, you adulterous people. That's what he's talking about. He's talking to Christians, by the way. Don't you know that friendship with the world means that you are at odds with God. This is about being unfaithful to what you know to be true according to God's standard for your life. And he calls them adulterers because they are pursuing their own desires rather than humbly submitting to what God has laid before them. This is is placing yourself at odds with God because you prefer to live your life satisfying your own selfish desires and gaining those sorts of advantages and pleasure rather than pleasing God and remaining faithful to Him. And if you so align yourself with these worldly kind of standards and attitudes, these actions and desires, you are a friend of the world and the the, the world is amoral at best Immoral at worst. There are no boundaries. You are an enemy of God. You are working against his gracious spirit. And you can be a Christian following after God, or following after his name, but be so far off the mark because you are being unfaithful to what you know to be true. There's another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go over to the right, or to the left, I'm sorry, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll just illustrate this. By the way, the the news gets very much better here in just a few moments, so hang in there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian believers, and he has square in his sights sexual immorality in the church. Here's what God says through the Apostle Paul. Verse, uh, verse 9, we'll start with verse 9. Do you not know what wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, um, nor men who have sex with other men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's quite a list. You, you cannot live that kind of lifestyle and expect to have any inheritance in God's kingdom, present or future, says Paul. 
And that is what some of you were. That's past tense. See, that's what God is about. He's making you something that you were. And rather, you, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So now you have been set apart, washed clean, justified, and made holy by the Spirit of God. So what is now before you is a much higher standard. You no longer pursue those things that are of your own desires, your kind of hedonistic ways. No, you pursue the things of God. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. Or you say, I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach, stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, listen to this, says Paul, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Your body does not belong to you. In Christ, because you've been washed, because you've been justified, because you've been set apart and made holy by the Spirit of our God, your body belongs to Him. And you absolutely cannot do whatever you want to do with your body because it's not yours. So God says, Stop it. Just stop it. Don't do that anymore. Because if you do, you are dishonoring the Lord, you are dishonoring your own body, and you are bringing chaos, arguments, dispute, and dissension into your life and into your family. Paul says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Can it be any more clear than that? How else can we pursue these fleshly desires than pursuing them in regards to satisfying our own selves? God says no. James says no. That is being unfaithful to God. Back to James chapter 4. If anyone chooses to be a friend of the world, he becomes an enemy of God. You have a will. God is not going to somehow storm the citadel of your life and just kind of have his way with you. He has given you, in his graciousness, a will to choose. You can either choose to love the world and pursue these fleshly desires, or you can love God and honor him in all your ways. That's what James is saying. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but rather he gives us more grace. That's why scripture says God opposes the proud. Okay, now we're getting somewhere. The real source of these conflicts, the real source of this relentless desire to pursue self-satisfaction is my own stubborn pride. I just have to have my way. 
And you need to know, listen, young person, young gal, young man, young couple, young family, husband, father, whoever you are out there, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you are stuck in this pattern of living your life according to your own plans, that is a root of pride in your life and according to the authority of the word of God. God is against you. He opposes the proud. He's not up for it. He will block it. He will withhold his blessing. And like he said to Obadiah, or through Obadiah to the great King Edom and all his power and pride, I will bring you down. But he shows grace to the humble. He's against the proud. He's for the humble. He's all about it. Now here's the pack. Here's here's the way back. Start in verse seven. God gives us a path. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Submit yourselves. The focus is on you. Focus on yourself, not all the other people. Well, man, if only she, no. Well, if only he, if he could just, no. I mean, if that, that group of people, if they could, no. The way back is to submit yourself to God. You think your marriage is an impossible place because of all the brokenness and all the strife and it's just, just, People at, two people at odds with one another. It happens all the time. They get in the room. It's only she can do this. Only he can do this. Somebody's got to stand down. Someone's got to make the first move toward God, humbling themselves before the Lord. That's what James is saying. Submit yourself then to God. I'm totally. I'm going to bring myself under the Lord's gracious hand. I'm going to bring myself under the ministry of his word and his spirit. I'm going to do whatever he says. I'm going to start with me. And turn back to him in repentance and humility. Second, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee for you. Stop putting yourself in vulnerable positions where the enemy can take you out, can influence you or your mind or your actions. Resist him. Just go the long way around those things where you know you're easy prey. Resist him that way. If he catches you anyway, then you can stand firm in the truth that that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Hit him with some truth. I can do all things through, through Christ which gives me strength. Resist him. And when he tempts you in prayer as Christ to stand with you, remove those, those opportunities those places where you can become so easy prey before this formidable foe that is Satan. That's how you resist him. And the promise is he will flee from you. We've got this, this dog in our neighborhood. Our kids call him the bear dog. Now, we've got a dog. It's a dog. I mean, it, it's a dog-shaped animal. It's just kind of... My kids love it. And every once in a while, we go for a walk with this little thing. This dog is, doesn't bark, doesn't hunt, doesn't bite, just... You know, doesn't do anything. But anyway, because it's so needy of attention at night, it's, it's a good time once in a while to go for a walk. 
And um, there have been a couple of times where I've been walking and kind of caught in my thoughts and I've just forgotten and I've taken a left and gone down this hill and, and down at the bottom of this hill there's this house that's kind of in the darkness and in the back corner of this house is this enormous dog, huge dog. That's what my kids call it, a bear dog. And out of the darkness, it starts to charge as soon as it sees me and, and my mournful little dog that is with me. <laughs> it comes up, foaming at the mouth and teeth, this huge animal. <laughs> now, I remember at that moment, I pull up this file from my childhood, I don't know if it was my dad or my grandpa or somebody, um, who had encountered such animals before and said, listen, you don't want to run from an animal like that. Can I get a witness? Anybody out there? Say. So what you need to do is stand firm, face them, and yell something like, go home. So this is what I do. This dog is charging at me. My dog is kind of wetting herself just by my side, not barking, not doing anything. I look at, go home. This thing just regains its bearing and starts coming at me again. Go home. <laughs> After about the third time, guess what? The thing just turns around and heads back into the darkness. I don't understand that. It just takes off. That's resisting. Now, there's two ways to do it. Don't go down that way. Just go another way. Teenagers, hear me. Go the other way. You know where you're weak. You know. Go the other way. Guys, gals, whoever, you know, just go the other way. Don't go that way. Satan is like a roaring lion. He is waiting to come out of the darkness and to roar at you. But second, if he does catch you, if he does come out of the trees and you are there facing him, you can resist him with truth. In the name of Christ, he has no power over you. You can face him. And he will flee from you. Come near to God. He's going to come near to you. Wash your hands. This is clean up your life talk, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're going to see God. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not a a call to sourpuss Christianity. No, but for a season, it's going to help you to just bow before the Lord and, and be broken before him. And he will lift you up. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will lift you up. He will bless your life. He will exalt your cause. He will provide for your needs. He will fulfill your life in ways that you can't even possibly imagine. And your whole house will thank you. Turn to him. And he will come towards you every single time. James 
so practical, so loving, so helpful, does not want his readers to be confused over the source of their conflicts, their quarrels, their arguing, this unnecessary strife in their lives. But he's not going to let us take the easy way out and point the finger at somebody else or maybe our past or our, our tough life or our situation or our plight. No, that's not the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is me. I've got desires deep within me that if I pursue them, only terrible things come of it. But if I turn to God and resist the one, the enemy of my soul, God will lift me up. Jesus Christ, God's only son, left the wonders of heaven came into a world of brokenness, he took on flesh. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He became flesh. Made himself obedient even to death. Death on a cross. That's what he did. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that in doing that, he broke down the wall of enmity between us and God. He did that. It's gone. And then Paul says, and then God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. See, that's what God wants to do in your life. If you insist on exalting yourself, I got this. All that swag and all that stuff. You just keep going that way. Hey, I'll tell you what. It's a lot easier to watch when a young man or a young woman or a couple or a family humble themselves. It's a whole lot harder to watch when God does the humbling for you. I can give you a personal testimony about that. Why not save all the trouble, all the pain, all the anguish, all the brokenness, and one by one, Everyone in this room, every young man, every young woman, every couple, every husband, every wife, every single mom, every grandmother, every person in the sound of my voice this morning, let's choose to humble ourselves before God and leave the exalting to him. Now that's the only way to live. If you're here this morning and everything has caved in on you and you're without hope and you've lost your marriage or you're addicted to something and you have no way out, the answer to your need is a person and his name is Jesus Christ. This place will let you down. We cannot lift you out of the miry clay. Jesus Christ can do it. He will transform your life. He will set you free. He will break the chains of your addiction. He will heal you from your past, the hurt and the shame. And he will exalt you. He will lift you up.
But you've got to humble yourself before him. You've got to repent of your sin. You've got to call upon his name and ask him to be your Lord, your Savior, and your God. And he will make you new. I'm going to invite you to come this morning and do that. Or maybe just bow right there where you're sitting. Your family needs you to humble yourself before the Lord this morning. So does mine. And just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I want to live my life for you, not for myself. I'm sorry. I want you to do that this morning. Let's bow. Close your eyes. Say, Pastor, you're talking to me. I need you to pray for me. I want to I humble myself before the Lord. You can just put your hand up in the air this morning and say, I need this in my life. You can come. You can bow at this altar. As Brandon leads us in a song, you can sing, Give your life to God. Let him exalt you.